as we've said all along, this, this uh, series primarily thinks about how we do our romantic and marriage relationships well. Uh, we're really keen to make sure that everything we talk about here is relevant to all of our relationships, and that's definitely true for what I'm going to talk about today, because I'm going to be looking at the whole issue of conflict and disconnection and struggle, interestingly, uh, in our relationships. And um, I, I, I'm going to pack a lot in to the next 30 minutes or so. And so I really want to encourage you, if you're not into the habit of kind of making a notes or anything like that, then I really want to encourage you to do that or get this message again, because I'm, I'm literally going to pack a huge amount into the next 30 minutes. And, and, and I'm, not, I'm not being overdramatic in saying, because uh, in a sense, to be honest, the message that I'm speaking about today has been seven years in preparation. Uh, because um, many of you all know that, that I stand before you today as a man who has a failed marriage behind him. And, and if I'd have known the things that I had share, I'm about to share with you today, then that story may not be true. And so for some of us in uh, the house today, uh, what I'm going to share with you is going to strengthen your relationships. For some of us here, this might just save your relationships. And... Uh, so this is a really, it feels to me, a really important message. And so I'm just praying like the Holy Spirit's going to help me to say all that I need to say in about 30 minutes. Amen? Amen. And you're, you're praying too, aren't you? But it's my birthday, so he's just got to be nice to me. So uh, anyway, let's start with this video clip. Let's watch the, watch the screens. It's just, there's all this pressure, you know? And sometimes it feels like it's right up on me. And I can just feel it, like literally feel it in my head. And it's relentless. And I don't know if it's going to stop. I mean, that's the thing that scares me the most is that I don't know if it's ever going to stop. Yeah. Well, you do have a nail in your head. It is not about the nail. Are you sure? Because, I mean, I'll bet if we got that out of there... Stop would... trying to fix it. No, I'm not trying to fix it. I'm just pointing out that maybe the nail is causing... You always do this. You always try to fix things when what I really need is for you to just listen. Yeah, see, I don't think that is what you need. I think what you need is to get the nail See, out. you're not even listening now. Okay, fine. I will listen. Fine. It's just... Sometimes it's like there's this achy... I don't know what it is. And I'm not sleeping very well at all. And all my sweaters are snagged. I mean, all of them. Yeah, I, that sounds really hard. It is. Thank you. Ow! Oh, come on! Ow. If you would just don't. Try to see things my way. It's not about the nail. So uh, the, we've referred to the book of Proverbs quite a few times in this series. It's a, it's a book in the Old Testament which has over 600 wise sayings. And I want to just draw out three wise sayings uh, that deal with the whole subject of relentless, troublesome conflict. Here's the first, Proverbs 21:19. It's better to live alone in the desert than with a quarrelsome, complaining wife. Proverbs 25, 24, it's better to stay outside on the roof of your house than to live inside with a nagging wife. Proverbs 19, 13, a quarrelsome wife is like the constant dripping of a leaky roof. 
Now, I can feel just the daggers going towards me here right now. So let me just be clear, like, like Kate said last week, that the book of Proverbs is written by a man. Okay? And had it been written by a woman, I want to suggest that all of those things that Solomon has just reflected on the female gender would also be true the other way. Ladies, would you agree? Okay, excellent. So we're all in good faith. And, and the Hebrew word that's used in all three of these is a word that is midian, and it's the word that is translated quarrelsome or uh, nagging, and sometimes it's translated highly contentious. And so basically what the writer is saying here, if, if, if any of us find ourselves in relationships where there's this constant, unresolved, relentless conflict, then it's better to be by yourself in a sun-scorched desert or, or sitting on a roof in the middle of the pouring rain whilst the roof is leaking. Now, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that essentially what Solomon is saying is, like, unresolved conflict is bad. It's bad. It's not good. And so the question is, how do we fight fair? Like, avoiding conflict is impossible, but how do we fight fair? And we're going to start by looking at the very first argument in the Bible. If you've got a Bible, turn uh, with me to Genesis chapter 3, or turn your Bibles on. Uh, if you haven't got one, it will be on the screens. And, and so thus far in the story, uh, God has created this perfect environment, this garden of Eden for Adam and Eve to flourish. And he says to them, you can enjoy it as much as you like. There's one thing you must not do. Do not eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, but as often happens, we think, they think they know better, they disobey God, and as a result of that, they feel shame and guilt for the first time. And the story picks up from here, verses 8 in chapter 3. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? The man answered, I heard you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, well, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman that you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree, and I ate it. So the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Pause. Come with me to 1972, and a guy called Dr. John Gottman is beginning what becomes decades and decades of research to understand what makes a great relationship and what are the greatest predictors of relationship breakdown and how they can be avoided. Now, there are many reasons, as I'm sure you know, that relationships can break down, sometimes sadly irretrievably, but Gottman identified four Four identifies four things that he believed were the most corrosive when they existed in relationships. And he called them the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And, uh, and if you know what that refers to, that's a, a reference to Revelation 6, the four uh, things that happen, the four evils that usher in the end of the world. And so his whole uh, kind of metaphor was these four things can usher in the end of a relationship if they are not dealt with. And we see them in, in light and shade in the story that we've just read. The first, he says, is criticism. Now, criticism, he talks about, is very different than uh, complaint, 
or critique. Complaint and critique can be to do with an issue. But, but criticism in the way that Gottman is describing it, it is basically saying something that challenges the very identity and nature of someone, the, the very personhood. It's when you say to someone, you are lazy. Uh, often it's preceded like fr- with phrases like, you never... Or you always, anyone know what I'm talking about? You never do this. You always do that. And, and the essence of this criticism is essentially it's, it's implying that there is something fundamentally wrong with the person. Even in the story that we've read, it's interesting that Adam's first criticism is actually towards God. He says, God, this is your fault. The woman that you gave me, she did this. You're a bad creator. You've supplied some faulty goods here, God. This is all your fault. The the whole approach here is about what's called finding the bad guy. Like, Who's the bad guy in this conflict? It never helps and it never works. And, And as Gottman says... If any of these things, and these things will probably exist to one degree or other in all of our relationships, um, it doesn't mean that your, your relationship is necessarily on life support. Not at all. It, there are things that you can do to change things and pull yourself out of that slump. And so he talks about if we're going to um, deal with the issue of criticism, then our response should be that we attack the problem, not the person, and we do so with gentleness. If you want to address the issue of criticism in your relationship, you attack the problem, not the person, and you do so with gentleness. Ephesians 4 verse 2, the the Apostle Paul writes, Always be humble and gentle, be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. This leads often, though, to the second horseman, which is defensiveness, which usually is how we respond to criticism, either through counterattack, we give as good as we get, or, or often we make excuses by posturing ourselves as the innocent party here. Well, I'm innocent. It's not my fault. And of course, the problem with this is that what that conveys to our friend or our partner is that we're not taking their concerns seriously and we're not taking responsibility for our actions. So picture the scene, uh, you, you come home at night and your partner says to you, um, oh, by the way, you know, did you, did you uh, pr- call our neighbors as you promised to this morning because we can't make their party tonight? The defensive response says, no, I didn't get to do it. You knew I had a busy day. You never should have asked me in the first place. Why didn't you do it? That's a defensive response. You can't be a little bit of reverse blame. And of course... Again, we see Adam does this. Once he's blamed God, he then blames Eve. God, this is your fault. You're a bad creator. And actually, she gave me the apple. It's, it's like the fruit. It's like Adam saying, like, I'm the innocent party here. This is not my fault. She almost put it in my mouth. I could not help that I ate it. We need to learn, Gottman says, to respond and not react. And in that moment that we actually accept some responsibility, admit where we've been at fault, and also demonstrate that we understand, even if we don't agree with, we understand the perspective of our friend and partner. We'll talk about that more later. So in the example that I've given, rather than react like I said, maybe a better response would be, actually, no, I'm sorry, I did forget to do that. I probably shouldn't have agreed to do it because I knew I had a busy day. It is my fault. I will call them now. That's a better response. Respond, not 
react. The wisdom of Proverbs 15.18 says that people with quick tempers cause trouble, but those who control their tempers stop a quarrel. And of course, being defensive is understandable. None of us like being attacked, and so it's easy to respond in a way that's defensive. But this can, if not held at bay, lead to the most devastating, actually, horseman, and that is what he calls contempt. And contempt is when, when we really just start being mean. We really just start being unkind. We're using sarcasm. We're rolling our eyes. We even might call names. Contempt goes way beyond criticism. Because the thing about contempt, what contempt is conveying is I am much better than you. There's a sense of superiority. It can leave the other person feeling despised, feeling worthless. And even Adam and Eve's response here is is bordering on contempt. The way that they're speaking to God and the way they're speaking to each other. Like, it doesn't take a genius to figure out in this moment when, when Eve turns to God and says, actually, it was the serpent that did it. You can imagine Adam's eyes rolling and saying, she's blaming a serpent, for goodness sake. Stupid woman. And, and yet she's probably thinking exactly the same about him. In his most famous sermon, Jesus reminds us of the power of contemptuous words The message version of Matthew 5, 21 to 22, Jesus says this, You're familiar with the command to the ancients, do not murder. But I'm telling you that anyone who is as much as angry with a brother or sister is guilty of murder, i.e. sometimes we can have murderous thoughts. Carelessly calling a brother idiot, and you just might find yourself hauled into court. Thoughtlessly yelling stupid at a sister, and you're on the brink of hellfire. The simple moral fact is that words kill. Contemptuous words kill relationship. And so it's no surprise that Gottman says that this is the single biggest predictor of relationship breakdown. When people are speaking contemptuous words. And, like, and what do we do? Like We just stop it. <laughs> we just stop it because it's so destructive. And the last horseman is stonewalling, he calls it. And that's what happens when, when one person withdraws from the relationship. They shut down. They turn away. They tune out. Or, or perhaps they sulk in the hope that their partner will respond to their sulking and their unhappiness. In, in my experience, what that, often what that happens is that the, the partner just gets more and more ticked, more and more annoyed. So you sulk, and the partner steps away. You sulk a bit more, and before you know it, You're taking more and more steps apart. It's amazing, isn't it, that even (coughs) in this story, Adam and Eve literally stonewall God. They hide from God. But the amazing thing about this story is that God goes looking for for them as, as he does for us. So if we're going to fight fair, my first overriding point is that we need to be aware of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And if we see them, we need to start to behave differently. Some of us have got to behave ourselves out of a situation that we've behaved ourselves into. Adopting new ways of behaviors, new ways of speaking. Is everyone with me so far? Okay, just slap someone next to you because I know this is some tough teaching here. So just like, just say, I'm okay, I'm all right so far. Is everyone all right? Okay, number two. That's the first thing. Number two. Our ability to respond better in those moments is going to be determined by the richness and depth of what I want to call and the health of our emotional bank account. Our emotional bank account. 
our relational bank account. What do I mean by that? A couple of weeks ago, if you didn't hear it, you must listen to the message that Paul gave on being other-centered. It was the second message in this series. And what he talked about is that the goal of all relationships, friendships and particularly marriages, the goal of all relationships is to see the other person thrive. There is no such thing as give and take. If you go into a relationship with the basis of give and take, you're in trouble. Marriages and all relationships thrive when your heart is simply to give. There's lots of cheering on. There's lots of gratitude. There's lots of kindness. There's lots of appreciation. Yes, there are times of challenge. Yes, sometimes people are behaving in a way and we need to challenge them. But it's very different challenging someone from a place of love versus contempt. When you challenge someone from a place of love, you're doing it because you want to build them up rather than tear them down. And so what this means is every time we do acts of love and kindness, every time we turn towards our partner and friend when they reach out to us rather than turning away or worse still turning against, every time we behave positively, we make a deposit in the emotional relational bank account. Is, everyone, is this making sense? So you either think it as a physical bank account or imagine it's a fish tank and the waters rise. And so the more love, the more kindness, the more positivity invested in that bank account, then the healthier we will feel about ourselves, the healthier we will feel about our partners, and the healthier we will feel about the relationship. Because what that bank account represents ultimately is our emotional connection. And we are wired for emotional connection. When, when I uh, speak to other married couples and they say, or other friends even, and they, and they say they drifted apart, what happened there is they lost their emotional connection. That heart-to-heart that we need. Strong emotional connection is absolutely vital for positive relationships, particularly in times of conflict. Because when our emotional bank account is full, like, like when we've had lots invested into it and we've put a lot into it, when conflict comes and there's an extraction from it, our reserves are still healthy. And because we've been invested in so much and we've invested in the relationship so much at an emotional level, because of that, like we're, we're not scraping the dregs out or we don't become overdrawn. Because when we become overdrawn, when our emotional bank account is very empty and we have conflict, then it's taking nothing. Uh, it's taking something and there's nothing left. That's the moment that those four horsemen start to appear on the scene. Am I making sense? And so the question is, like, how do we build a healthy emotional bank account? How do we do that? I want to give you four things that we need to do if we're going to build a really, really healthy emotional bank account for our, all of our relationships, but particularly our romantic ones. And the first is to underline what Paul said uh, just two weeks ago, that we need to commit to consistent, positive, loving, kind words and actions. In fact, Gottman says the healthiest relationships grow to a place where there are five positive interactions, words and actions to every one negative. Now, now you might listen to that and think, flip me, I've got a long way to go. We've all got a long way to go. But he says like, if, we, if we really want to build a deep reserve, a reservoir of emotional connection, then, then the emphasis must be on the, on the positive, loving, kind interactions that build it up. Some of you may be familiar with uh, a book that was published years ago by a guy called Char- uh, Gary Chapman, The Five Languages of Love. 
And, uh, and some people like this, some people don't like this. I find it quite helpful, actually. And he talks about the five love languages. Here they are. They're not going to be on the screen. Uh, and the first is words of affirmation. Some of us feel really loved when we are affirmed, when people say, well done, that was great, you look lovely. That, that means a lot to us. For some of us, it's acts of service, someone cooking us a meal, someone uh, doing the washing up, doing our washing, doing the ironing. Acts of service help us feel loved. For others of us, it's receiving gifts. It's like my birthday today, and uh, I love Haagen-Dazs Belgian chocolate, and so if you decide to drop some off later at my house, I'm going to know that you love me, okay? Do you need my address? Just like... For, for many of us, it's, it's time, the gift of time. The thing that we feel most value about is our time, and for many of us, it's physical touch. And that doesn't have to just be sexual touch, but just a hug, an arm around, a, a caress of the shoulder, a pat on the knee, any form of touch that, that fills that connection. And, and, and whilst, if you're like me, I, I mean, I like all of those things, that's all great, but there are some of them that feel more important to me. And, and, and so, again, I've seen this in relationships like, like you, you could be a guy and you might go home and shower your, your wife with, with gifts, but if you forget her dentist appointment, that's a great anxiety for her, then that stuff's not worth anything. Because what she, what she really needs to know, her language of love is not so much gifts, but it's that affirmation, it's that time, it's that commitment. And we should be taking time to figure out, how do I love you best? Sometimes we project the way we like to be loved onto our partner. But what, what, what is a great deal? What makes a difference? And we should be looking to do those things. Remember these words, Colossians 3.12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, and gentleness, and patience. Let's like pour those things into the relationship, and that will build an emotional, healthy reserve. Secondly, we need to cultivate regular, stress-reducing conversations, not about our relationship, but about other stuff, so that we can practice stress-relieving conversations and build up skills and abilities so that when it comes to the difficult stuff, we're, we're, we're better placed to do those things. So things about work or other issues. And the focus of these conversations is all about listening and understanding. It's not about um, trying to fix things. Remember, it's not about the nail. Like too often, and I, and I know I'm, I'm reverting to gender stereotypes here, but I think it's generally true, uh, I know it's true of me, that guys generally want to fix something. You come and you tell me that there's a problem, I want to fix it. But, but actually, one of the big lessons in life that I've learned, and that I wish I'd have learned sooner, is that the most important thing before anything is someone feels loved, and they feel heard, and they feel understood, even if I dif- disagree with their point of view, before I jump into trying to fix a presenting issue. It's like I need permission from someone to do that. Like a lot of times, you know, if, if you think of the famous story of Job, there's a, a story in the Bible of a guy who loses all his kids, he loses business, his wife leads him and he gets sick. And for the first five days, six days, his friends, they just come and sit with him in the silence. They just, they weep with him, they wrestle with him. No one says a word. That's what they do. They enter into the suffering. They listen and understand. It only goes wrong when they try to come up with solutions. We need to learn to do this. We're listening, some of you write this down, with the ears of the heart. Not with the brain to fix, we're listening with the ears of the heart. First and foremost, our partners and friends are people to be loved, not problems to be fixed. First and foremost, our partners and friends are people to be loved, 
not problems to be fixed. James, Jesus' stepbrother, writes these words in James 1.19. Understand this, my dear brothers and sisters. You must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. And maybe some of you have heard of this little uh, kind of an acronym, THINK. Think before you speak. So every time you're going to launch into your little tirade, think before you speak. T, is what you're about to say true? H, is it helpful? I, is it inspiring? N, is it necessary? K, is it kind? If those things are not true, be quiet. Be quiet. Can I get an amen? He's like, you're messing with my life. Number three. Another way we build a healthy emotional bank account is to build rituals and rhythms of connection. This is about just intentional, positive time and space to be together with our friends and our partners. It's it's meal times, it's date nights, it's hanging out with friends. None of this stuff happens by chance. None of this stuff happens by chance. We've got to be intentional. We create space to talk and laugh and to have fun and to grow closer. We protect it. We diarize it. We prioritize it. And we do it. We do it. We create that space. And we work at it. We work at it with all that we can. Paul, again, the apostle, writes in Colossians 3.23, Whatever you do... Work at it with all your heart as if working for the Lord. And that includes your relationships. We need to work harder on our relationships than our work. At the end of the day, I promise, when you and I stand before Jesus, he is not going to say, like, how good was was your project management skills? He really isn't. He really isn't going to do that. We, We are going to be judged, assessed, reviewed, challenged by the way we did our relationships because we serve a relational God and he will look at our lives through the the lens of our relationships. And then fourthly, we need to grow stronger through conflict. Conflict is not bad. You know, I know that there may be some people in the room who say, I've never ever had an argument. And if that's true, that is fantastic. God bless you. Please write a book. Um, it will probably just be a page. Like most of us, like conflict happens, but actually conflict can be a good thing because actually it can deepen connection. And, and again, Gottman talks about these five steps to doing conflict well. Let me give them to you briefly, and I'm soon coming into land. Step one is the importance of talking about our feelings. Now, there is a way of doing this that's damaging and a way of doing this which can be helpful. So a way of doing this that is damaging is when we say to our partners, you made me feel. We need to ditch that language from our vocabulary. People ultimately can't make you feel anything. We, we mustn't allow that. But it is fair for us to say, when this happened, this is how I felt. Or even when you did this, this is how I felt. The you made me feel is an attacking, aggressive thing that will put people on the defensive. We don't want people to be defensive. And some of us need to learn the ability to start to express our feelings. Secondly, the second step is to talk about realities. Not just our feelings, but our sense of what has actually happened here. What, what, What do you think that's happened here? What do I think that's happened here? Again, trying to avoid attack and blame and being judgmental, listening well, but uh, allowing each other to have some perspective on the reason for the conflict. Again, listening really well. And even if you don't agree with what the person is saying, but you can uh, express empathy and understanding and acceptance. 
A more difficult one is step three, triggers. Sometimes when we have an overreaction, it can be for one of two reasons. The reason number one is there's just not a lot in our emotional bank account. And so when conflict happens, we're literally overdrawn. There's nothing emotionally there. And then we react rather than respond. But sometimes the reason we have a reaction is because what has happened in the relationship is a trigger for something that's happened in our past. And so sometimes we, 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 we experience something through the lens of that. So we think like, when this happened, when this was said, it reminds me of this. And so I think what this is, is that. And it takes great courage and bravery to identify that and to be vulnerable enough to share that with our partner because we might be wrong. And it's in those moments that hopefully there's understanding and empathy to say, well, I'm, I'm really sorry. I, I, it, it is not that. It's not what I was meaning to do, but it can help us grow in understanding and it deepens our emotional bank account. Step four is responsibility. This is the moment where we all have to acknowledge that we play a part in our relationships, that we've contributed in some way, even if in a tiny way, to the fight or the conflict, not as an excuse, but to offer some understanding. Like, what do you regret? What are the things that you need to apologize for? Are you willing to accept the apology of your partner? In two weeks' time, the last um, session in this series, Pete Gilbert's going to come and he's going to talk about forgiveness and reconciliation. I won't be talking about that today. He'll be doing that in two weeks. And then step five is to think about the way forward. Like, How are we going to do this better next time? How am I going to do this better? Um, What would I find helpful for you to do better? And just to be able to have an honest, calm, kind conversation about that. How do we fight fair in our relationships? Number one, we need to beware the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And number two, we need to invest in growing a deep emotional bank account. And finally, number three, we need to build with God at the center and with the help of other people. And let me just say this. Like there, there may be, I hope not, but there may be people in the room and right now, you're just saying, like, our relationship is like too far gone for this. Like, it's just in too difficult a place, uh, whether that's a friendship or a, or a, or a romantic relationship. And, and I want to say to you, like, get help. Like, like don't, don't, don't suffer in silence. Get help. Like, in the past, I've been to Relate for six months every single week, years and years ago in, a, in, a, in an earlier difficult time, 10 years into marriage. Like, like, when you are in a difficult relationship breakdown, like as much as you are able, if your partner is willing, get as much help as you possibly can and love and prayer from other people. But more than anything, we just keep coming back to this uh, time and time again in this series. If we really, really want to do this well. Only the creator of our soul can heal our soul and make us whole. Like, like only God really has the power and the strength and the ability to be the glue that can restore and heal fully our relationships. Think about these verses in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 1 to 8. It's often read at weddings. You'll know uh, these words if you've been to a wedding. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does de- not demand its own way. It's not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but it rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up. Love never loses faith. It's always hopeful and endures every circumstance. Okay, folks, all you've got to do, just grab that, go love like that. You'll all be good. 
And of course you're laughing because you're looking at this thing. That is impossible and you're right. Because what 1 Corinthians 13 is describing is God. That is what God is like. God is patient and kind. God is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. God does not demand his own way. God never gives up, never loses faith. He always is hopeful, endures through every circumstance and so it goes on. This is what God is like. And if I invite God into my life, if I keep him at the center of of my life, then the God who is like that will enable me to be like that, which is good for me and all my relationships. So let me finish with some final quick tips. I know it's been a whirlwind, and then we're going to stand and pray and finish. Every day, I want to encourage you individually and personally to invite God to help you to be more like him. Because the more like him you'll be, the better you're going to be for yourself and for all your relationships. Secondly, if you are in a relationship with someone who is a believer, I want to encourage you. And even if you've got good close friends, you can still do with this. Pray together every single day out loud. No amens. Interesting. I I want to say there is an enemy strategy that is stopping men and women and, and married couples praying together. It's like we've got into this thing of like, I'm too embarrassed, I can't speak out loud, I can't do this. You know, and, and it's an enemy strategy. I promise you, if you can be brave and get into the habit of praying together and praying over each other, it will revolutionize your relationship with God. I promise it will. Now, I know I'm talking about people, again, who are believers together. And I know that's not the case. There are some of us who are single. There are some of us who are with a partner who's not a believer. I realize that's hard. But I still have buddies. I have friends that every single morning at 7 o'clock in the morning in different places around the country, we're doing a little U, um, U-version study together. We're, we're writing words over each other every single day. We can all do this. But do it in your relationships. Secondly, if you recognize that you've... Uh, thirdly, if you recognize you've done some stuff wrong, like admit it. Apologize. Own your failures. And start to do things differently. The secret to a revolution in your relationship is many evolutions. Commit to small changes often. Little changes all the time can result in big differences. And if, as I close, if you need help in your relationship, absolutely ask people, let us support you, let us pray for you, let us help you. Maybe you are here today or you know people and and a relationship is definitely coming to an end, or maybe it needs to. Sometimes in the agony of relationships that are toxic and abusive, but don't do that by yourself. Do that with others, people who will love you and care for you. But as you think about this, and and if you think your relationship is is on the border of breakdown, let me leave you with this thought, and then we'll stand and pray. Don't make permanent decisions in the midst of what might be a temporary temporary setback. Don't make permanent decisions. It may feel like your relationship is is in trouble, even with a friend or family member. Do not make a permanent decision. Do not think that what you're in is permanent. Maybe you're in a temporary, difficult, painful setback, and things can change. Because I want to tell you, things can change. Things can change. Shall we stand?